Chapter 51 of Science in Short Chapters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kadia Battersby. Science in Short Chapters by W. Matthew Williams. Chapter 51, Solids, Liquids and Gases, Part 2. Numberless other experiments may be made, all proving that all gases are composed of matter which is not merely incohesive, but is energetically self-repulsive, so much so that it can only be retained within any bounds whatever by means of some external pressure or constraint. For aught we know experimentally, the gaseous contents of one of Mr Glacier's balloons would outstretch itself sufficiently to occupy the whole sphere of space that spanned by the Earth's orbit, providing that space were perfectly vacuous and the balloon were burst in the midst of it, the temperature of the expanding gas being maintained. Here then, in this self-repulsiveness, instead of self-cohesion, this absence of self-imposed boundary or dimension, we have a broad and well-marked distinction between gases and liquids. So broad that there seems no bridge that could possibly cross it. This was believed to be the case until recently. Such a bridge has, however, been built, and rendered visible by the experimental researches of Dr Andrews, but further explanation is required to render this generally intelligible. Until quite lately, it was customary to divide gases into two classes, permanent gases and condensable gases, or vapours. Gaseous water or steam was usually described as typical of the latter, oxygen, hydrogen or nitrogen of the former. Earlier than this, many other gases were included in the permanent list. But Faraday made a serious inroad upon this classification when he liquefied chlorine by cooling and compressing it. Long after this, the gaseous elements of water and the chief constituents of air, oxygen, hydrogen and nitrogen, resisted all effort to condense them. But now they have succumbed to great pressure and extreme cooling. We thus arrive at a very broad generalisation, viz. that all gases are physically similar to steam. I mean, of course, dry steam, i.e. true, invisible steam, and not the cloudy matter to which the name of steam is popularly given, that they are all formed by raising liquids above their boiling point, just as steam is formed when we boil water and maintain the steam above the boiling point of water. But some liquids boil at temperatures far below that at which others freeze. Liquid chlorine boils at a temperature below that of freezing water, and liquid carbonic acid below even that of freezing mercury, and liquid hydrogen far lower still. These are cases of boiling nevertheless, though it seems a paradox according to the ideas we commonly attach to the word, but such ideas are based on our common experience of the properties of our commonest liquids, viz. water. When water boils under the conditions of our ordinary experience, the passage from liquid to the gaseous state is a sudden leap, with no intermediate state of existence that we are able to perceive. And the conditions upon which water is converted into steam, the liquid into the gas, while both at the bottom of our atmospheric ocean, are such as to render an intermediate condition rationally, as well as practically, impossible. We find that the expansive energy by which the steam is enabled to resist atmospheric pressure is conferred upon it by its taking into itself and utilising from its expansive efforts a large amount of calorific energy. When any given quantity of water is converted into steam, under ordinary circumstances, its bulk suddenly becomes above 1,700 times greater. A cubic inch of water forms about a cubic foot of steam, and nearly a 1,000 degrees of heat, 966.6, 6, 
disappears as temperature. Otherwise stated, we must give to the cubic inch of water at 212 degrees as much heat as would raise it to a temperature of 212 plus 966.6 or 1178.6 if it remained liquid. This is about the temperature of the glowing coals of a common fire, but the steam that has thus taken enough energy to make the water red hot is still at 212 degrees, no hotter than the water was while boiling. This heat, which thus ceases to exhibit itself as temperature, is otherwise occupied. Its energy is partly devoted to the work of increasing the bulk of the water to the above-named extent, and partly in conferring on the steam its gaseous speciality, that is, in it overcoming liquid cohesion, and substituting for it its opposite property of internal repulsive energy, which is characteristic of gases. My reasons for thus defining and separating these two functions of the so-called latent heat will be seen when we come to the philosophy of the interesting researches of Dr. Andrews. As already explained, all gases are now proved to be analogous to steam. They are matter expanded and rendered self-repulsive by heat. All elementary matter may exist in either of the three forms, solid, liquid or gas, according to the amount of heat and pressure to which it is subjected. I limit this wide generalisation to elementary substances for the following reasons. Many compounds are made up of elements so feebly held together that they become dissociated when heated to a temperature below their boiling point, or their condition may otherwise defined by stating that their bonds of chemical energy which hold their elements together are weaker than the cohesion which binds and holds them in the condition of solid or liquid, and are more easily broken by the expansive energy of heat. To illustrate this, let us take two common and well-known oils, olive oil and turpentine. The first belongs to the class of fixed oils and the second to volatile oils. If we apply heat to liquid turpentine, it boils, passes into the state of gaseous turpentine, which is easily condensable by cooling it. If the liquid result of this condensation is examined, we find it to be turpentine as before. Not so with the olive oil. Just as this reaches its boiling point, the heat, which would otherwise convert it to olive oil vapour, begins to dissociate its constituents, and if the temperature be raised a little higher, we obtain some gases, but these are the products of the decomposition, not gases olive oil. This is called destructive distillation. In olive oil, the boiling point and dissociation point are near to each other. In the case of glycerine, these points are so nearly approximate that, although we cannot distill it unbroken under ordinary atmospheric pressure, we may do so if some of this pressure is removed. Under such diminished pressure, the boiling point is brought down below the dissociation point, and condensable glycerine gas comes over without decomposition. Sugar affords a very interesting example of dissociation, commencing far below the boiling point and going on gradually and visibly with increasing rapidity as the temperature is raised. Put some white sugar into a spoon and heat the spoon gradually over a smokeless gas flame or spirit lamp. At first the sugar melts, then becomes yellow, barley sugar. This colour deepens to orange, then red, then chestnut brown, then dark brown, then nearly black, caramel. Then quite black and finally becomes a mere cinder. Sugar is composed of carbon and water. The heat dissociates this carbon, separates the water which passes off as vapour and leaves the carbon behind. The gradual deepening of the colour indicates the gradual carbonisation which is completed when only the dry insoluble cinder remains. An appearance of boiling is seen, but this is the boiling of the dissociated water, not of the sugar. 
The dissociation temperature of water is far above its boiling point. It is 5072 degrees Fahrenheit, under conditions corresponding to those which makes its boiling point 212 degrees. If we examine the variations of the boiling point of water, as the atmospheric pressure on its surface varies, some curious results follow. To do this, the reader must endure some figures. They are extremely simple and perfectly intelligible, but demand just a little attention. Following are three columns. The first represents atmospheres of pressure, i.e. taking our atmospheric pressure when it supports 30 inches of mercury in the barometer tube as a unit. That pressure is doubled, trebled, etc. up to 20 times in the first column. The second column states the temperature at which water boils when under the different pressures thus indicated. And the third column, which is the subject of the special study just now, shows how much we must rise the temperature of the water in order to make it boil as we go on adding atmospheres of pressure. Or, in other words, the increase of temperature due to each increase of one atmosphere of pressure. The figures are founded on the experiments of Regnault. Pressures in atmospheres, temperatures in Fahrenheit and rise of temperature for each additional atmosphere. 1 atmosphere, temperature 212. 2 atmospheres, temperature 249.5, rise of temperature 37.5. 3 atmospheres, temperature 273.3, rise of temperature 23.8. 4 atmospheres, temperature 291.2, rise of temperature 17.9. 5 atmospheres, Temperature 306, rise of temperature 14.8. 6 atmospheres. Temperature 318.2, rise of temperature 12.2. 7 atmospheres. Temperature 329.6, rise of temperature 11.4. 8 atmospheres. Temperature 339.5, rise of temperature 9.9. .9. 9 atmospheres, temperature 348.4, rise of temperature 8.9. 10 atmospheres, temperature 356.6, rise of temperature 8.2. 11 atmospheres, temperature 364.2, rise of temperature 7.6. 12 atmospheres, temperature 371.1, rise of temperature 6.9. 13 atmospheres, temperature 377.8, rise of temperature 6.7. 14 atmospheres, temperature 384, rise of temperature 6.2. 15 atmospheres, temperature 390, rise of temperature 6. 16 atmospheres, temperature 395.4, Rise of temperature 5.4. 17 atmospheres, temperature 400.8, rise in temperature 5.4. 18 atmospheres, temperature 405.9, rise in temperature 5.1. 19 atmospheres, temperature 410.8, rise in temperature 4.9. 20 atmospheres, temperature 515.4, rising temperature 4.6. It may be seen from the above that with the exception of one irregularity, there is a continual diminution of the additional temperature which is required to overcome an additional atmosphere of pressure. 
And if this goes on as per the pressure and temperature advance, we may ultimately reach a curious condition, a temperature at which additional pressure will demand no additional temperature to maintain the gaseous state. Or, in other words, a temperature may be reached at which no amount of pressure can condense steam into water, or at which the gaseous and liquid states merge or become indifferent. But we must not push this mere numerical reasoning too far, seeing that it is quite possible to be continually approaching a given point without ever reaching it. As when we go on continually halving the remaining distance, the figures in the above do not appear to follow according to such a law, nor, indeed, any other regularity. This probably arises from experimental error, as there are discrepancies in the results of different investigators. They all agree, however, in the broad fact of the gradation above stated. Dulong and Arago, who directed the experiments of the French Government Commission for investigating this subject, state the pressure at 20 atmospheres to be 418.4, at 21, 422.9, at 22, 427.3, at 23, 431.4, and at 24 atmospheres, their highest experimental limit, 435.5, thus reducing the rise of temperature between the 23rd and the 24th atmospheres to 4.1. If we could go on heating water in a transparent vessel until this difference became a vanishing quantity, we should probably recognise a visible physical change coincident with this cessation of condensability by pressure. But this is not possible as glass would become red-hot and softened and thus incapable of bearing the great pressure demanded. Besides this, glass is soluble in water at these high temperatures. If, however, we can find some liquid with a lower boiling point, we may go on piling atmosphere upon atmosphere of elastic, expansive pressure as the temperature is raised, without reaching an unmanageable degree of heat. Liquid carbonic acid, which, under a single atmosphere of pressure, boils at 112 below the zero of our thermometer, may thus be raised to a temperature having the same relation to its boiling point that a red heat has to that of water, and may be still confined within the glass vessel, provided the walls of the vessel are sufficiently thick to bear the strain of the elastic outstriving pressure. In spite of its brittleness, glass is capable of bearing the enormous strain steadily applied, as may be proved by trying to break even a mere thread of glass by direct pull. Dr Andrews thus treated carbonic acid, and the experiment, as I have witnessed its repetition, is very curious. A liquid occupies the lower part of a very strong glass tube, which appears empty above, but this apparent void is occupied by invisible carbonic acid gas evolved by the previous boiling of the liquid carbonic acid below. We start at a low temperature, say 40 degrees Fahrenheit, then the temperature is raised. The liquid boils until it has given sufficient gas or vapour to exert the full expansive pressure or tension due to that temperature. This pressure stops the boiling and again the surface of the liquid is becalmed. This is repeated at a higher temperature and thus continued until we approach nearly to 88 degrees Fahrenheit when the surface of the liquid loses some of its sharp outline. Then 88 degrees is reached, and the boundary between liquid and gas vanishes. Liquid and gas have blended into one mysterious intermediate fluid. An indefinite, fluctuating something is there filling the whole of the tube. An etherealized vapour or visible gas 
Hold a red-hot poker between your eyes and the light. You will see an upflowing, wavy movement of what appears like liquid air. The appearance of this hybrid fluid in the tube resembles this, but is sensibly denser and evidently stands between the liquid and gaseous states of matter, as pitch or treacle stand between solid and liquid. The temperature at which this occurs has been named by Dr. Andrews the critical temperature. Here the gaseous and liquid states are continuous. And it is probable that all substances capable of existing in both states have their own particular critical temperatures. Having thus stated the facts in popular outline, I shall conclude the subject by indulging in some speculation of my own on the philosophy of these general facts of natural laws and on some of their possible consequences. As already stated, the conversion of water into steam under ordinary atmospheric pressure demands 966.6 degrees of heat over and above that which does the work of raising the water to 212 degrees. Or, otherwise stated, as much heat is at work in a given weight of steam at 212 degrees and will raise the same quantity of water to 1178.6 degrees if it remained liquid. James Watt concluded from his experiments that a given weight of steam, whatever may be its density, or in other words under whatever pressure it may exist, contains the same quantity of heat. According to this, if we reduce the pressure sufficiently to bring down the boiling point to 112 degrees instead of 212 degrees, the latent heat of the steam thus formed would be 1066.6 instead of 966.6, or if on the other hand, we placed it under sufficient pressure to raise the boiling point to 312, the latent heat of the steam would be reduced to 866.6 degrees, i.e. only 866.6 degrees more than would be required to convert the water into steam. If the boiling point were 412 degrees, as it is between 19 and 20 atmospheres of pressure, only 766.6 degrees more heat would be required, and so on, till we reached a pressure which raised the boiling point to 1178.6 degrees. The water would then become steam without further heating, i.e. the critical point would be reached, and thus, if what is right, we can easily determine, theoretically, the critical temperature of water. Mr. Perkins, who made some remarkable experiments upon very high-pressure steam many years ago and exhibited a steam gun at the Adelaide Gallery, stated that red-hot water does not boil, that if the generator be sufficiently strong to stand a pressure of £60,000 load on the safety valve, the water may be made to exert a pressure of £56,000 on the square inch at the cherry-red heat without boiling. He made a number of rather dangerous experiments in thus raising water to a red heat and his assertion that red-hot water does not boil is curious when viewed in connection with Dr Andrews' experiments. I cannot tell how he arrived at this conclusion, having been unable to obtain the original record of his experiments, and only quote the above second hand. It is worthy of remark that the temperature he names is about 1170 degrees, or that which, if what is right, must be the critical temperature of water. Perkins' red-hot water would not boil, being then in the intermediate condition. So far we have a nice theory, which not only shows how the critical state of water must be reached, but also its precise temperature. But all this is based on the assumption that Watt made no mistake. Unfortunately, for the simplicity of this theory, Regnault states that his experiments contradict those of Watt, 
and proved that the latent heat of steam does not diminish just in the same degree as the boiling point is raised, but that instead of this diminution of the latent heat progresses 30.5% more slowly than the rise of temperature. So that, instead of the latent heat of steam between boiling points of 212 degrees and 312 degrees, falling from 966.6 to 866.6 degrees, it would only fall to 895.1 degrees, or 69.5 degrees of latent heat for every 100 degrees of temperature. If this is correct, the temperature at which the latent heat of steam is reduced to zero is much higher than 1178.6 and is, in fact, a continually receding quantity, never absolutely reached. But I am not prepared to accept these figures of Regnault as implicitly as, as it is now done in textbook. It was nearly saying, as is now the fashion. Seeing that there are not the actual figures obtained by his experiments, but those of his empirical formulae based upon them. His actual experimental figures are very irregular. Thus, between steam temperature of 171.6 degrees and 183.2 degrees, a difference of 11.6 degrees, the experimental difference in the latent heat came out as 4.7 degrees. Between steam temperature of 183.2 degrees and 194.8 degrees, or 11.6 degrees again, the latent heat difference is tabulated as 8 degrees. Regnault's experiments were not carried to very high temperatures and pressures and indicate that as these advance the deviation from what laws diminishes and may finally vanish at about 1500 or 1600 degrees where the latent heat would reach zero and there, according to the above, the critical temperature would be reached. Any additional heat applied after this will have but one function to perform, viz., the ordinary work of increasing the bulk of the heated body without doing any further in the way of conferring upon it any new self-repulsive properties. Our notions of solids, liquids and gases are derived from our experiences of the state of matter here upon the earth. Could we be removed to another planet, they would be curiously changed. On Mercury, water would rank as one of the condensable gases. On Mars, as a fusible solid. But what on Jupiter? Recent observations justify us in regarding this as a miniature sun, with an external envelope of cloudy matter, apparently of partially condensed water, but red-hot or probably still hotter within. His vaporous atmosphere is evidently of enormous depth, and the force of gravitation being on his visible outer surface two and a half times greater than that on our Earth's surface. The atmospheric pressure in descending below this visible surface must soon reach that at which the vapour of water would be brought to its critical condition. Therefore, we may infer that the oceans of Jupiter are neither of frozen liquid nor gaseous water, but are oceans or atmospheres of critical water. If any fish, birds swim or fly therein, they must be very critically organised. As the whole mass of Jupiter is 300 times greater than that of the Earth, and its compressing energy towards the centre proportional to this, its materials, if similar to those of the Earth and no hotter, would be considerably more dense, and the whole planet would have a higher specific gravity. But we know by the movement of its satellites that instead of this, its specific gravity is less than a fourth of that of the Earth. This justifies the conclusion that it is intensely hot, for even hydrogen, if cold, would become denser than Jupiter under such pressure. As all elementary substances may exist as solids, liquids or gases, or critically, according to the conditions of temperature and pressure, 
I am justified in hypothetically concluding that Jupiter is neither a solid, a liquid, nor a gaseous planet, but a critical planet, or an orb composed internally of dissociated elements in the critical state, and surrounded by a dense atmosphere of their vapours, and those of some of their compounds, such as water. The same reasoning applies to Saturn and the other large and rarefied planets. The critical temperature of the dissociated elements of the Sun is probably reached at the base of the photosphere, or that region revealed to us by sunspots. When I wrote The Fuel of the Sun, 13 or 14 years ago, I suggested on the above grounds that the then heretical idea of the red heat of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, and showed that all such compounds as water must be dissociated at the base of the Sun's atmosphere. But being then unacquainted with the existence of this critical state of matter, I supposed the dissociated elements to exist as gases with a small, solid nucleus or kernel in the centre. Applying now the researches of Dr Andrews to the conditions of solar existence, as I formally applied the dissociation researches to Ville, I conclude that the Sun has no nucleus, either solid, liquid or gaseous, but is composed of dissociated matter in the critical state, surrounded first by a flaming envelope due to the recombination of the dissociated matter, and outside of this, another envelope of vapours due to this combination. End of chapter 51, recorded by Katie Battersby.